Welcome everyone to another episode of Teacher Prep. This is Dr. D, and today I am with Brendan Jobes, who is the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Haverford School in Pennsylvania. How are you doing today, Brendan? I'm doing okay. It's been a busy one, but um, I'm home, and that's good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, home and safe. That's always critical. Basic needs are being met. We can check that off the list. Yeah. Today we're talking about the role of diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion in education. And you come with a, to us with a ton of experience in this area. So if you could just tell our audience a little bit about your background and what listeners should know about you. Um, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot. I've been teaching for the past 14 years. I guess... Um, what I would say, firstly, is I'm an educator first. You know, all 14 of those years, something that's been a common denominator in my experience has been teaching and learning and thinking about teaching and learning kids, teaching and learning with kids in classroom contexts. Um, but uh, I'm, I, I'm somebody who's relatively new to the type of school I'm in. Um, the Haverford School is an independent school. I've been at the Haverford School for the past four years. Um, but for 10 years before that, um, I worked in the Philadelphia school system, um, one of the largest um, urban, urban, urban public systems in the country, um, at two schools. One was, the first one was the Philadelphia High School for Girls, um, where I was for seven years, teaching mostly um, Black history and, um, and uh, world history and also AP US history. That was a hard, that was a hard couple of years teaching AP US history. Um, and then I moved to a school in South Philly where I taught um, kind of musician scholars, similar subjects. Mm -hmm. um, all of that time I've spent teaching, um, you know, history in the classroom. I was kind of building a practice around thinking about equity and inclusion um, more broadly with teachers. Mm -hmm. um, since then, you know, um, I think it grew out of that time in the local public schools. I've become more of a of a teacher trainer and more of a community builder in schools. Right. So, fourteen years in public schools. Um, uh, ten years. Ten years in public schools. Okay. Ten, ten, fourteen years in education. Ten years in public schools. What it, What's working right now that you see in public schools, and what's not working, and how do you bring that into your work with teacher uh, future teachers what's working in public schools correct I, don't, I, I i i'm not sure how to answer that because i'm not working in public schools right now but from what i what i notice you know i i remember um and i and i still talk to a lot of my friends who are public school teachers um and pay attention to what's happening in philadelphia i live in philadelphia so i'm also um a citizen who pays attention to what happens in the public schools. I'm wondering why there still aren't um, equity positions, you know, that are intentionally community building positions in this way in public schools in the same way that they exist in private schools. Mm -hmm. um, over the past, I'd say, 10 to 15 years, um, independent schools across the country have been building intentional positions um, around engaging people and thinking about um, how to build more more 
equitable, more just communities within schools. Um, so I'm, I, I wonder where that is in public schools starting to creep in. I'm wondering if this moment that we're living in, this moment of global protest um, against you know structural racism, will make it so that public schools start to pay more attention and actually um, institutionalize this work more, more um, in a in a in a more concrete way. Right. So being more intentional in terms of having those conversations about racism and about equity and inclusion. Um, mm-hmm. I just remember when I was, I, and I, I know that, that um, your podcast speaks a lot to pre-service teachers and it makes me think about when I first started teaching, you know, right. I just remember I, 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 I started, I, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. Sure. You know? <laughs> Um, and I, I, over my first five years of teaching, I just remember um, feeling like I was knitting together um, a practice where we could talk about race and class and injustice and gender and sexuality um, in a way that was meaningful. Um, and I, I was never sure if I was doing it right because there was nobody, nobody to really turn to other than other colleagues who were kind of doing the same kind of building the plane as we flew it. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's um, kind of typically how a day will roll in in the classroom because, you know, events happen and kids are coming in with experiences that you need to, you know, to react to or to move towards. And so every day, even though you have your teacher plan book, you have your agenda, maybe Mm -hmm. you have this great lesson that you want to teach, you have to be so flexible because you're dealing with human beings that are coming in with their own experiences. So teachers having that mindset of, you know, really just making connections first before they move into that content is so important. Um, But you also talked about, you know, how you build that into a meaningful conversation and then how you knit that together And that's so personal because, you know, I mean, I personally taught in South Los Angeles um, my first 10 years of the classroom. And, you know, I was working with uh, racially diverse students. It was 99 percent free and reduced lunch, 99 percent minority students. uh, And having those conversations, I had to kind of find my space where I felt really comfortable and I loved poetry. So bringing in literature that would speak to the students and also create a space for us to have meaningful conversations and talk about issues in their community was, was a more comfortable vehicle for me because it was a space that I felt comfortable in, but also could create a safe environment for my students to participate. So I think it's both um, personal and subjective and also you know, it, it takes shape based on your learners. It's, I don't think there's a one size fit all approach. Um, unless you know something that I don't, but my own experience, uh, having those conversations was was really important, but I also think it's really important to also relate to your Mm -hmm. students and Mm -hmm. to have those connections. So I grew up in the project. So I had some, my own personal connections with being a child who lived in poverty so I could relate to my students. I had a really tough time teaching in an affluent school. 
because I just was like, what is going on here? I could not relate to my students. So I'm just curious because now you went from one extreme to another working in public schools to a pretty inclusive private school. How, how do you, how do you build that space or create connections with your learners when maybe you don't have those experiences to really relate to them? There's a lot in what you just said, you know, um, one thing that I think about is creating an environment, you know, that is authentic, you know, and for me, as I don't like the term minority, I feel like minority is part of what makes it so that, um, you know, right. we don't, we don't center, you know, black voices, we don't center, um, you know, we don't center non-dominant, non-white voices, you know, in, in, in school spaces. I think minority is one of these terms that, you know, is is part of what I think one of, this is one of the terms that creates that kind of pattern. Right. You know, so one thing that I did in my classroom was get rid of the idea of minority, right? Um, we started thinking about ourselves as people of color and talking about that, you know, and talking about what that meant, um, but also started using... And when we were talking about specific racial groups, we started talking about the racial groups in particular. One term that I'm thinking about that's new in this moment is the idea of BIPOC, um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color as a as a replacement for the now older people of color group. Um, uh, so changing language is one way, you right. know, that I've worked to kind of build an environment in my classroom space that's authentic. Um, another way is thinking also about the idea of safety and comfort. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the reading that I've done and um, the mentors that I've had have really pushed me out of thinking about creating classroom spaces that are safe. You know, because if you think about um, the idea of, you know, whose safety is prefaced when we're imagining everybody is safe um, in spaces where power exists. So often, you know, it's the dominant group's safety that's preface. It's the dominant group's comfort mm-hmm. that is preface. So I've been pushed to think much more in terms of creating brave spaces where people are pushing themselves to be courageous in a million ways, you know, and that's part of the excitement of, you know, for me, that's been the excitement of creating brave spaces. People show up as courageous and brave in all these unexpected ways that, you know, are ways that are much different than how I would imagine I would show up if I were being brave right. or courageous. Um, so part of, for me, um, part of creating um, an authentic classroom space has been kind of really interrogating the terms that we use to talk about schools in our classrooms. Mm-hmm. In terms of, like, relating to students, when I first started teaching, um, I was... A 20 something, 20 nothing. I forgot, right. maybe 23 or so, 24. Um, and I was teaching at an all girls school, um, mostly black and brown mm-hmm. students. Um, again, the Fuller High School for Girls. Um, and I remember, you know, I was only five years removed or so from my students. You know, so there were some students that I had who, who, who were almost like, who, who were in the range of being in my friend group, you know, and right. on top of that, you know, I had a, I had some of my siblings, you know, around that age. So there was this, 
in terms of relating, how do I how do I relate how do I relate with these students in a way that is teacher student, but right. is also um, you know productive for teaching and learning. And you know when I started to come that first year was hard. Let me tell you, sure. <laughs> that first year was hard trying to imagine that and navigate that. I'd say you know to be generous to myself, the first three to five years was hard, like figuring that out. Um, but what I've come to over the years is. Even in my classrooms today, um, in in this new context, this this relatively new context I'm teaching in, um, relating to students has always started with connecting with um, their humanity, mm. you know, their humanness. At the end of the day, you know, what do we all have in common? Um, our humanness, right. our needs, our wants, our hopes, our dreams. Um, our, our imagination that, you know, fairness and justice matter to us deeply as people who live in this place together. Um, so those are the things that I think have really um, helped shape how I, how I kind of ideate creating an authentic classroom space. Mm. Yeah, I like the idea of thinking about language and how it creates kind of those stigmas as you shared the status of minority or the status of being a second language learner and kind of that negative connotation that it it brings in and creates those power structures which I I agree with you 100% I think that's really important but as we talked even before the meeting my language register being a Bostonian um it could just it almost goes into this automatic space where I feel like mm-hmm. I have a hard time with that. So I'm just curious how we can reshape that and move forward without creating more division between each other, you know, and how much of this is really kind of created by what we consume in the media and without really moving in towards that that humanness that you spoke about, which is so important. Hmm. So how do we, how do we change our language paradigms? That's really, cause you talked about language and mm-hmm. how that kind of sets those boundaries. And, oh, yeah. and I'm just curious about, because there's some, like you've said the term BIPOC. I've never heard that before. This is a whole mm-hmm. new space for me. Uh, you know, living where I live and I haven't, I'm not in an urban environment, but yet preparing future teachers that are going to be working in urban classrooms. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I think I got, I, th- I think I have it. So the two things that come up for me is exposure and practice. Um, one of my mentors um, who I, who I, I, I really changed my, my teaching life in a lot of ways. Um, he got me thinking more about um, teaching as a practice and also like this equity and inclusion work and um, as, as a practice, something that, you know, we never actually um, finish doing. Right. You know? um, so I'm thinking about the idea of being more exposed to the language like you said you never you, you haven't you haven't encountered the word bipoc but i i'll have to say you know i don't think i encountered the word bipoc until maybe earlier this year 
right? I started seeing it in the media more. And as soon as I started seeing it in the media more as a replacement for people of color, I started interrogating it. Like, where where did that come from? Mm. Why are people using it? You know? And before I knew it, I had started using it, you know, because I saw value in in its existence, you know? Um, so that was exposure for me that was translated into use. And now I'm, I'm using it more actively so I can practice saying it and also practice engaging other folks and using it too. Right. Um, and then there's a graphic that came up um, on social media. Social media is a great place for exposure too, right? So I'm thinking about Instagram, I'm thinking about um, Twitter. Um, there are all these memes that come up. And I think, you know, say what you will about meme culture. You know, some people say that it's really base and useless um, and just about jokes and shenanigans. But I think in a lot of ways, meme culture is a memes to a means to exposure. So right. there's this one um, um, meme that I saw um, created by Holistically Grace. And um, the idea of it is um, thinking about the idea of anti-racism, you know, something that people might be hearing in the media more or seeing more in, in school action plans um, for equity and justice. Um, you know, the question is, well, what does anti-racism mean? How do you how do you achieve, how do you become an anti-racist? What do you do? How do right. you, what, are, what does it sound like to be an anti-racist? Um, and I'm just going to like kind of read a couple of the comments that like. Yeah, absolutely. I think actually up, that, that was, up. that was the meme that I reached out to you because you had posted that on, was that on LinkedIn, right? Yeah, it's on LinkedIn. So like in terms of a fix, um, if you, if you're thinking about what comfort sounds like for thinking about, uh, Talking about race, often people say these things because this is where they live in terms of comfort. I don't know where to start or what to say, you know, when a hard moment happens. Right. Another one might be, I don't want to get it wrong or get called out. Right. Another one might be, it won't make a difference when I do. Nothing's going to change. I think that's something that people say much more quietly. I don't hear that one as much. Right. That might be self-talk even. Right. Yeah. Talk what you say to yourself without conveying it out, without saying it outwardly. And the last one is, I don't get involved in politics. I don't have time. Right. So there's also this imagination that teaching is apolitical somehow. Right. You know, we live in society with each other. So these are people saying from a place of of comfort. And in a lot of ways, you know, that reads. Um, I was just talking with. Um, members of my own faculty around the work that we're doing at Haverford School, and we were talking about the idea of avoidance, you know, when it comes to talking about race or or gender or sexuality or or when it comes to talking about anything that people perceive as hard, mm. right? And anything people perceive as difficult. You know, there's fight or flight comes up. It becomes very stressful. So people um, think about comfort. How do we move from comfort to a courageous space where we're actually pushing ourselves to create something new? So from that first statement, um, I don't know where to start. You might say something more like, first I'll listen, read, watch. I'll speak against injustice, right? Think about that as another way of reframing or getting out of that comfort space of saying, I don't know what to do. There's plenty you can do. You can start by just exposing yourself and then practicing with that exp- exposure, right? The second one, I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to get called out. 
this is my favorite. And this is, I, I've started to do this with myself a lot more. And with teachers I train, I also teach um, history methods and um, University of Pennsylvania's independent school teaching residency program. Um, I try to, with pre-service teachers and, and young teachers, first year, second year teachers that I train, I, I try to remind us, and I say this for, for myself too when I'm working with them, you're like, let's have a little grace with ourselves. It's right. okay to mess up. You know, so that statement, the second statement related to this comfort statement will be, I will make mistakes. No doubt about it. Mm-hmm. I will definitely make mistakes. I'll be grateful for the lesson. So like not only admitting that I'm going to make mistakes, but also thinking about, well, what's going to come of it, right? That's the growth. Um, so like, I won't go through the other ones, but this is something that I think, you know, is critical for the work. Thinking about um, being aware of not knowing what you don't know, pushing yourself as an educator. This is what I, this is what I right. practice for myself, pushing myself as an educator to expose myself to as much as I can of how the world is feeling and, and, and acting and thinking about how to practice being more courageous in it. I love that. No, I'm, I'm a big fan of growth mindset. So when I saw this particular, I, it's a meme, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it resonated with me and I even having some of those mindsets that you talked about, it's, you know, I don't want to get called out. I don't want to get it wrong because in my role as, you know, a teacher, as a teacher educator, you know, I'm feeling a lot of anxiety. Like what if I say the wrong thing and I lose my job, how is that going to impact my family? What if I do the wrong thing and I offend somebody? And so we end up tiptoeing around these issues without really getting our feet in there, getting, you know, getting, getting to do the work because we're, kind of operating from a level of fear, mm-hmm. which I just heard this beautiful acronym for fear. I don't know. I'm sure you've heard of it. False evidence appearing real, right? Oh, no, I haven't. Uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm reading this book about mindfulness um, because I'm trying to, you know, move into a space where I've changed my mindset and go into more of this growth, courage, And, um, but I do recognize my own fear about some of these issues because, you know, I am a woman that is a white woman that people might say, oh, she's a Karen. This is a new thing. I, I, I'm a Karen. Wait, (laughs) that rocked my world. Like someone asked me that someone said that to me this week. I'm like, what's a Karen? And so I started feeling Mm -hmm. a lot of this anxiety about it. I'm just like, wow, I'm feeling uncomfortable because now I'm getting a label. I've never had a label like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And how that's making me feel as, you know, in my roles, in my, in my zones and how I can move out of that. So I started doing this mindfulness book and the first, first um, chapter was about the fear and, and recognizing your fears. So I see a lot of connections to that. And I think meditation could be a useful tool. Um, but I'm wondering if you have any other strategies that can help teachers and, and uh, people that have those fixed mindsets move towards a growth mindset. Well, I think mindfulness is part of the core of it. You know, I, I don't think that um, we can talk our way out of systems of oppression that dehumanize people. Mm-hmm. You know, that destroy lives and destroy futures and possibilities. We can't talk our way out of it. And I say that because 
I feel like um, when we have conversations um, that have to do with equity and justice, um, especially in white spaces, spaces that are majorly white, um, faculties often are majorly white because of um, what teaching demographics look like across the country. Right. Um, I don't know. It's either it's either absolutely silent, mm-hmm. where people are trying not to say their own thing, or you have people just talking in circles. Right. Right. Um, talking until they, I don't know, until they land on something <laughs> that is that's that's worth that's going to solve whatever they feel like the problem. Right. Something that um, has really changed my frame on how to how to approach this is like thinking about um, the systemic inequality and systemic racism um, and and and, um, and sexism and homophobia and all of these as less less of a problem to solve. You know, with with some imaginary solutions, sure, and more of a polarity, right? Something that will always be something that we're grappling with, something that will evolve as a problem. You know, the way racism looks today might not be the way that it looks two years from now, three years from now. Mm-hmm. You know, we're encouraging folks to um, practice anti-racism right now, right? When I was growing up in the eighties and nineties, early thousands. People were encouraging folks to be colorblind. Right. right? Um, and if you go back even further, and if you go back into different moments through history, you know, there's always been some some imaginary solve to whatever problem was facing us. Um, so part part so part of what I'm 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 considering is, you know, these problems aren't problems to eradicate or to solve or to get rid of. These um, challenges are, are are relational issues that are built into the fabric of our society. Yes. Right? So how do we manage them? How do we how do we engage with each other in ways that are really human, in ways that bring us together in some way? You know, as we're working through the complicated nature of these polarities, I think mindfulness is a key part of that. Right, and um, I'm going to go back to Howard Stevenson. I work as a um, racial literacy trainer um, for an organization um, he's developed called Lion Story. Mm. Um, Lion Story is founded on um, an African proverb. The proverb states that the story of the lion will never be known so long as the hunter is the one to tell it. Oh, beautiful. Right. So I, I love I love that. I never heard of that proverb until yeah. Dr. Stevenson brought it up. Um, but once he brought it up, you know, it lives in my heart. You know, it, 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 and the idea there is um, as we're engaging with each other right. in society, we have to engage from a place of story. And yes. we can't imagine that we can't imagine that somebody else can tell somebody's somebody else's story in a way that is effective or meaningful or useful for bringing us together in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I want to get back to thinking about mindfulness as a part of this, um, as a part of um, what he calls um, a, a racial literacy practice. He argues that you know, thinking about how we feel in moments that are really tough around these 
around these 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 these, these systemic oppressions is critical. Um, I'm going to bring up an acronym, another acronym, CLCBE. It stands for Calculate, Locate, Communicate, Breathe, and Exhale. And what it argues is, you know, if we're confronted with a moment that is racist, if, if, we're, if, 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 if we're confronted with a moment that is homophobic, if we're confronted with a moment that is sexist, right? If we're in the middle of uh, an a moment of identity stress. What right. do we do? We can run from it. We can avoid it. We can act like it didn't happen, right? Or we can confront it in a way that isn't that is really kind of unthinking. You know, I, I just reacted. I just I just said something, you know, without thinking about what we're saying or why we're saying it. Or we can actually employ mindfulness to pause, right? Calculate what we're feeling. Mm-hmm. On a scale of one to ten, ten being like the most intense feeling, one being not feeling much at all, right? Um, locate where we're feeling, whatever we're feeling in our bodies, mm. right? If I'm feeling pain or hurt or affronted, you know, from whatever, or, you know, joy, <laughs> am I feeling it in my heart? Am I feeling it in my, in my, in my foot? Am I feeling it in my back? Am I feeling it in my throat? You know, where where is it showing up in my body? Because these feelings also manifest within us, right? If anything, that's something that can bring us together in terms of just being humans on this earth together. Like why would you it's it's one thing to um hear what somebody's feeling, um, but it's another thing to be able to connect with where it's showing up for that right? Because we all have bodies. Um, and the last part is really communicating out what's happening. And so often, our reaction to a moment of identity stress, we're feeling how it's showing up in our bodies. And often, that is also, you know, the best vehicle for communicating outwardly to someone else. This is what this did in this moment to me or for me, or getting people to actually connect empathetically with each other. Right. Can you imagine how this might have how, how this might have landed for somebody else? You know, I can't tell you how many times that method and that idea and that practice of mindfulness has really helped me get to the other side of moments that have been so tough, Absolutely. so difficult. And also, I have to say, you know, because teaching is so quick, right? There's so many decisions we make within within five minutes. Exactly. You know, so. Also, how how much of a scene the method has been in moments when there are so many other things happening that are just pulling my attention away and, you know, encouraging me to avoid situations that are stressful. Exactly. I, I think we were talking about this before the show about teacher trauma and how we don't really address that. And um, I remember specifically, I was visiting a student, a teacher, teacher's classroom And one of the students stood up in the back of the room and he was dressed all in black and he put a ski mask on his head. And my heart, I mean, like you were talking about the body. I remember like freezing because at that time there was so much going on in the media with school shootings. And I, you know, had a lot of anxiety around that and, And I saw that that was like a trigger for me and my body froze, my body froze. And I, 
it was one of the first times I, I, I started really thinking about, you know, the impact of what's happening in our schools and how it, it affects me and my work with teacher candidates. I did what you said. I, you know, kind of paused, I calculated, I, I recalibrated and I did some breathing to help me kind of not be reactionary, but proactive about the situation. Um, but that whole issue of, like I was sharing that we come into the classroom with, with trauma and triggers that we're not even aware of that can just Mm -hmm. manifest in situations. Um, and, and what do we do? Yeah. And as you're speaking about that situation, I'm wondering what kids are watching you, you know, because whether we're, whether we we're doing it in a way that's mindful, I'm not saying doing it right. Right. Because what is right? Just if we're doing it in a way that's mindful or if we're doing it in a way that's mindless, mm-hmm. you know, kids are watching. So what are we modeling for right. them? You know, when we make these choices, we're modeling, you know, behavior and ways of being um, for whoever we're influencing in our sphere of influence. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think about all that time as a mom, you know, my, I'm constantly modeling for my kids. <laughs> Talking about research, and my son is always like, Mom, I have a theory. <laughs> but, you, <laughs> you know. know I was, something else came up for me in terms of thinking about modeling, too. There's, um, I, again, I saw this on ex- social media and memes and all of, all of this infrastructure that's been built um, out, in, out in, in, on the Internet is really fertile ground for exposure, right? Mm. Um, I There's um, a person um, out in, I think she's in Milwaukee. Yeah, Peter Kane. She made this um, this really awesome resource because I think, to go back to language, you know, how do we talk about, um, what language can we use to talk about um anti-racism you know it's not just the word there's so much that's related to um talking about and naming systems of oppression and also managing our way through them there's this um entire pdf file that does an awesome job of breaking down a lot of the terms Uh you know that often you know people don't know in education because it's not part of what is mandatorily taught in teacher training programs. Right. Right. It's all of that stuff that I talked about in, my, in, the beginning, in the beginning of my career. I had to learn on the fly. I had to, I had to learn in partnership with, with people in my teaching community um, throughout Philadelphia. Um, but here it is. Like there's this, there's this document that is almost like its own standalone dictionary. It's actually called an anti-racist dictionary. And I thought that was, I, 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 that's another tool that just came up for me while you were speaking oh, in terms great. of thinking about practice and exposure. Right. And, and that goes back to that, that key thing that you shared at the beginning, exposure and practice, connecting with humanity. Um, and I love that what you were saying um, about letting everybody have their story and everyone and having these conversations, engaging from a place of story, which I think is really critical and then that strategy uh, that you shared about connecting, calibrating, connecting, breathing, and exhaling. That's so phenomenal. I love it. And I yeah. also want to say, you know, if for me, I think just helps me move into a moving from fix to growth is practicing humility and just 
being okay with being vulnerable and mm-hmm. saying, I don't know. And I, I feel like that helps me move forward and into a space where I can engage in these conversations instead of just, you know, having up my filter and saying, well, this doesn't have value or this doesn't affect me, or I don't really need to do this. Um, so being vulnerable and listening. So I don't know if you have other strategies that you think teachers should engage in or kind of practice, but I love the idea of looking at this dictionary and having these conversations with colleagues, with students, um, and just getting getting our hands dirty, kind of. Yeah, I'm, I don't know if I have specific strategies um, that are worth talking about here, but I'm, when you bring up humility and vulnerability, I, I immediately start to think about care, right? I think this is the way that we show that we care about people as educators. I think being vulnerable and being humble is easier said than done, right? Right. What does it look like? Who's modeled it for us? How do we practice it? Um, How do we get over our own egos? You know, I think that's all that's easier said than done. But I, so I I think there's a whole bucket of strategies we can talk about with, you know, practicing humility and vulnerability. But I I know that kind of the, the point of that is to get to a place of being able to show care for others, mm. right? Something that I've been I've been seeing a lot in um, messages that are coming from um, school leaders from across the country um, with the national with the global protests, and also with um, I don't know if you've seen these um, black ad Instagram accounts that have been popping up um, all all over the country around the experiences of black students in schools, mm. independent schools and public schools. Um, they're, they're very short. I have um, seen those very powerful. Yeah. Very, very, very painful. Right. It, it, it's, it's and very vulnerable, right? People mm-hmm. are sharing instances of extreme hurt, harm, you know, racial encounters, racism. Right. And so I'm seeing people right in letters about creating um, or caring about um, developing communities of care, mm-hmm. right? So, what are what are how how can you tell that your community is one of care? You know, what are the signposts? I think that's part of I think that's part of the work that we as a as an as an education industry. Have to build out further, mm-hmm. but I know that you know, for what we're talking about, humility and vulnerability have to be a part of that. Modeling that and also practicing that um, within ourselves has, has to be a part of it. If we're not doing those things, if we're not risking, you know, whatever we feel like we need to risk to be vulnerable and, and humble um, as 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 servants in schools, you know, essentially. Um, what are we doing? Right. I think it's it's, not creating caring places. Yeah, we're not. I I think it's really important and to come from a lens of caring. I I love that you're, you know, you've emphasized that and how it connects to vulnerability and, and humility. I also think teachers want to be advocates, but they don't know how to do it. And it becomes a very slippery slope. Um, because so much of it is connected to like your perception and what you perceive and how it impacts experiences. Um, and certainly I have gotten into trouble myself 
putting myself putting myself in a situation where I felt like I was advocating for students. And it ended up being a situation where I, you know, got my hand slapped by administration. Um, so I didn't know if you had any advice. It's, when you were talking, that just kind of brought me back to that moment in time when I was in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know if you had any advice for teachers that that want to move in that direction and be advocates, but are having difficulty navigating that with administration or finding a, you know, a safe space for them to do that kind of work. Mm -hmm. So that brought me back to the question of what are you willing to risk? Mm. You know, what, and that has to be, it doesn't have to be, but I mean, if, if you're serious about, um, creating an anti-racist teaching practice, or a, or making it so that the patterns that we're seeing at the black at Instagram accounts and accounts that are coming out of of schools from other channels at this moment, or you know the reality of the pattern of the global protests against police violence, you know, if if you're serious about changing that pattern or that narrative then I think as educators, we have to think about what we're willing to risk, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I've been, I, I, I've had trouble with, with administration when I was a younger teacher, you know, pushing for what I wanted to push for in my classroom because I felt like it was what was best for kids right. or best for students or made them feel most seen or heard or even just baseline interested (laughs) in school, you know, connected to school. Um, But, you know, what kids want and need and what makes them feel connected to a school community isn't always what aligns with what administration wants, Mm -hmm. right? So as teachers, we're in the middle of that, right? Yeah. So I, I think that part of the key question, right, wouldn't it be awesome if a teacher education programs, you know, this was part of what was negotiated, what was reflected on, what was thought through. What are you willing to risk, you know, to actually hold up to whatever you wrote in your teaching philosophy? Yeah, it's, I mean, I remember specific, I will never, it's like one of those events that happens to you that you never forget, where basically as a new teacher, the the administration, and I I just was trying to advocate for students to have access to technology and access to, you know, resources that other neighboring schools have. And the principal came up to me after and said, you know, you're not tenured and you might not get rehired next year. (laughs) So you need to learn how to listen and not talk. Um, or, or that or that school might not be a fit. Right. I ended up staying or, there for know? five years. Because <laughs> I love the kids. That's the thing is that you love the kids so much. It's, you love the kids at that school or you love kids in general? No, I love the kids at that school. I just, I mean, it just had such a profound shape on, you know, my on my role as a teacher, as a teacher educator and um, yeah. it was hard for me to kind of detach with love, if you will. And what I found is that, you know, I've been, I've consulted in a number of schools, um, but I've also, you know, been a community member in, in a number of schools. I have found that, and I felt that way when I was at my first school, you know, very connected to the one institution, to these kids in this place at this moment. Um, but I have found, you know, my love for teaching and learning and teaching and learning in the K-12 space 
um, is much more broadly, you know, connected to, you know, child development Mm -hmm. and kids in general. Right. So I think that's something else that, you know, individual educators have to be really honest about in terms of thinking about how they navigate that that moment where they're bumping up against what the administration demands or wants or expects of them in relationship to what the kids in the space want or need, mm-hmm. you know? Well, I loved being able to chat with you about these, these topics and issues. And I want to thank you for your time. How can people keep up with you? I mean, you've shared so much about this, uh, me movement and I and I know you're doing a lot of great work so how can our listener listeners keep in touch with you and and learn more from you um I I update LinkedIn pretty regularly mm-hmm. but I'm also on Twitter um and I think those are those are two pretty good vehicles yeah where I share a lot of the means that I'm coming across um and also connect with other people awesome well I will share um in the show notes if that's okay with you, your LinkedIn, sure. your LinkedIn profile. We actually ask our teacher candidates to start a LinkedIn profile and to get connected with other professional le- professionals and professional learning communities so that they can work in that space and continue to grow as educators. Um, so I want to thank you so much for your time today, Bre- uh, Brendan, and hopefully get you back on the show sometime soon. Awesome. Okay. Thanks. Bye, Brandon. Bye.